Hey, Talking Tax listeners, this is podcast producer David Schultz. I wanted to let you know about a long-form podcast series we just created here called Uncommon Law. It will feature super deep dives into really thorny legal, government, and tax issues that are playing out across the country. The plan is to bring you a new series of episodes on a different topic every quarter. But first, I wanted to share with you a single special episode of Uncommon Law on a topic that is very relevant right now businesses failing due to the coronavirus pandemic. The first story we're featuring is called Business Interrupted, and it's hosted by yours truly. I hope you enjoy. It's hard to run a business, really hard. And I'm not talking about how it's difficult to make stuff or then convince someone to exchange their money for your stuff. It's hard because there's just so much unforeseeable stuff that can happen. A shipment gets damaged, someone slips and falls in your aisle, there's a fire in the place next door, all of these are things that can wreak havoc on even a successful business. Also this. Broadway has extended its shutdown. Shutdown order. Shut it down, start over. Shutdown plan in New York City. This is why insurance exists. It can help mitigate the risk of, say, a worldwide pandemic that shuts down what feels like the entire world. And there actually is a type of insurance that covers this exact type of thing. It's called business interruption insurance. And a lot of businesses across the country and the world started filing claims on their business interruption policies when all this madness began earlier this year. However, the vast majority of those claims were denied because years ago, the insurance companies quietly inserted clauses into all of their policies that said they wouldn't pay out in the event of a pandemic. It's almost as though they knew this could happen. Now, I'm not saying that insurance companies knew that at the end of 2019, there would be a novel coronavirus that originated in China and that it infects humans via the respiratory tract. If you're looking for conspiracy theories, you have come to the wrong podcast. But right now, you might be asking yourself, what podcast did I come to? Well, you're listening to Business Interrupted from Bloomberg Industry Group, and I'm your host, David Schultz. This is a podcast about how businesses of every stripe, large, small, you name it, assume they had insurance that covered them in the event of a shutdown, and how those assumptions were, by and large, wrong. You'll hear from myself, along with Bloomberg reporters Lydia Bayoud and Evan Weinberger from our corporate desk, and David Hood from our tax desk, about what happened to those businesses, why, and what might happen next. So, back to what I was saying earlier. You might not have seen the pandemic coming, but the insurance industry knew it might happen. Insurers did their homework and realized it was likely there would be a pandemic of some kind at some point that it was, in fact, foreseeable. They paid very close attention to the SARS outbreak back in the 2000s. And SARS is becoming more aggressive. The number of victims expected to triple within weeks. Despite and they learned lessons that other industries and even many governments didn't. How do we know this? It's all in the policies that they wrote. Well, most commercial property policies contain what is the so-called virus exclusion, the, quote, exclusion of loss due to virus or bacteria, unquote. That's Scott Seaman, a Chicago-based attorney with the firm Hinshaw and Culbertson, who represents insurers. And the commercial property policies he's talking about are insurance that's held by many, many businesses. It's called business interruption insurance, and it's supposed to pay out if something out of your control happens and forces your business to shut down. It's supposed to replace some or maybe even most of the revenue you lost during a shutdown. But as Scott Seaman just said, nearly all of the business interruption policies issued by nearly every insurance company, not all, but just about all, 
came with a virus exclusion attached. This amendment specifically stated that the policy will not pay out if a business is shut down due to a pandemic. And that's no accident. The introduction of virus exclusions was a direct response to the last time a coronavirus threatened to infect all of mankind, the SARS epidemic. That epidemic caused some shutdowns in a few countries, but even then the claims were hefty, including one that reportedly totaled $16 million to an international hotel chain. Insurers saw this, they realized how much they'd have to pay out if a pandemic caused global shutdowns, and then quickly got to work adding these exclusions in. But while the insurers knew a global pandemic was possible, if not likely, the business owners who purchased their policies did not. Take Julia Mayer, the owner of a cafe and restaurant in Santa Barbara, California. She called her insurance broker right after the first COVID stay-at-home orders were issued. And at that point, our broker said, you do not have virus coverage and you do not have pandemic coverage, so there will not be any ability for you to access your insurance. And that was a very big shock for me to hear because I didn't expect that at all. I didn't expect, my question wasn't, am I covered? It was more, when will this coverage kick in? As a result, instead of hunkering down and using her insurance money to tread water, Julia is barely staying in business. And she's not alone. Business owners across the country are getting their business interruption claims denied and denied fast, in some cases within hours of filing them. So this might seem like a simple story, right? It's just those greedy insurance companies again, happy to collect your annual premiums, but always trying to avoid paying out a claim. And if you're a business owner like Julia, who's had her claim denied, that might be it. But the truth is, it's actually much more complicated. If you start digging around looking at the origins of this virus exclusion and why it was even created, you wind up with existential questions about what insurance even is and why it exists in the first place. And podcast listeners, those are the questions we're going to ask. We're going to look at why so many companies that thought they were covered were, in fact, not, what this means for them, and why the insurance industry may be winning the battle but losing the war. We'll hear from coffee roasters, theater owners, restaurateurs, angry politicians, frustrated insurance regulators, the Houston Rockets, and for good measure, Benjamin Franklin. All will be explained. Stay with us. Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So before we go any further, we all have to be on the same page about what insurance actually is. This is the point of the podcast where I might play a clip from one of those old-timey 1950s instructional videos that they used to show in high school economics class, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning, back when modern property insurance as we know it today was basically first conceived by this guy, you may have heard of him, Benjamin Franklin. Yes, that Benjamin Franklin. Long before he graced the $100 bill, before he even signed the Declaration of Independence, Franklin started the Philadelphia Contributorship for the Insurance of Houses from Losses by Fire. If it were around today, it would probably be called the PCI-HLF, but that's neither here nor there. Franklin didn't invent insurance, but he did help to invent property and casualty insurance. 
And importantly, or at least importantly for the purposes of this podcast, the PCI HLF was the first insurance company to inspect properties and issue policies based on their risk. If your home was made of faulty materials or you stored flammable materials in your basement, no policy for you. Why was this such a big innovation? Because it allowed the insurer to manage its own risk, the risk of having to pay out more in claims than it's actually collected. As long as everyone's house doesn't catch on fire all at the same time, you're fine. Your policyholders pay their premiums, their houses don't catch on fire so they don't file claims, but when they do, you can afford it because you've insured lower risk houses, hopefully. That's a really fundamental principle. And here's another way to put it. This is Dan Schwartz, a law professor at the University of Minnesota who specializes in insurance. The broad principle is one that's been around for, for really the history of insurance, which is insurers thrive when they can uh, insure risks that are not correlated with one another. So insurers like to find risks that are not correlated. And so then that's the question of, okay, well, how do you identify correlated risks? And so historically, there were exclusions for war, there were exclusions for earthquakes, there were exclusions for floods, lots of events that could simultaneously result in coverage for policyholders. That is a really important point. Insurers don't want to cover events that could cause all of their policyholders to file claims all at the same time. In other words, an unforeseeable event is okay as long as it's both unforeseeable and discreet. But what does that mean for small businesses? Small business owners, let's say, for example, a cafe owner in Santa Barbara, California, they're just trying to earn revenue and not go out of business. A business insurance policy is something they know they have to get, but for most small entrepreneurs, it's probably not among the top 100 most important decisions they have to make in running their business. However, there are now a whole lot of business owners who are really wishing they spent more time looking over the insurance policies they signed years ago. And this isn't just a big business thing or a small business thing. It's not limited to one industrial sector or one part of the country. Celebrity chefs are having problems with their insurance. Big clothing retailers are having problems. And even the NBA's Houston Rockets filed a lawsuit after their business interruption claim was, my apologies, rejected. For three, blocked by Harden. Bloomberg Law's Lydia Bayou didn't speak with James Harden, but she did speak with a lot of small business owners. And she says right now, many feel like they were sold a bill of goods. Lydia takes over the story from here. Julia Meyer, the cafe owner we heard from earlier, has had truly awful luck with her business interruption insurance. The claim she filed this year after the pandemic shut her cafe down wasn't the first time she thought her policy would cover her, but didn't. Back in 2017, wildfires burned hundreds of thousands of acres in and around Santa Barbara, where her cafe is located. Huge parts of the Southern California town were evacuated. So we were watching the fire kind of come across our city and they were evacuating block by block. Julia actually proactively called her insurer before she shut down her cafe. Our insurance said, well, once, you're, once your business falls into a mandatory evacuation, you we can talk. And we were one block away from the mandatory evacuation. That's the thing. That time, Julia's policy only kicked in if the government forced her business to shut down. It didn't matter that she couldn't have kept her cafe open anyway. There weren't many customers lining up to eat sandwiches and drink coffee with a wildfire looming. The policy required a ruling that's called a civil authority. Then, less than a month later, heavy rains came, and with the landscape charred from the fires, mudslides became a problem. 
they are finding many cars. We don't know where those vehicles were parked last night. Sometime after the rain came, mud surrounded them and carried them off. The in fact, concern, they were the so bad they blocked the main highways leading in or out of the town. Julia thought, well, if people can't access my business because a civil authority shut down the roads, maybe that fits the criteria. So she tried again and reopened her already denied claim, but no luck. That was also denied because, again, we could get into our doors. Ultimately, Julia says she lost two months of revenue and survived only thanks to a loan from the Federal Small Business Administration. Bonnie Schock is also no stranger to how insurance companies work, but that's because it runs in her family. My father happened to be um, an insurance underwriter and I'm married to an insurance adjuster. Um, so I've been around the, the industry quite a lot in my life. Bonnie runs the Fox Theater, a 1,164 seat venue in downtown Tucson, Arizona. Fox Tucson Theater. Like Julia, Bonnie submitted a business interruption claim after the pandemic hit, and like Julia, it was denied. And the Fox Theater actually had an endorsement in its policy that covered communicable disease. So our communicable diseases uh, endorsement, one would think uh, we would have been paid out on, but in fact, that is not the case because um, in that instance, uh, the policy requires that there actually be an incidence of disease in the space that requires the shutdown because this is a circumstance where the shutdown is related to the possibility and the and the um uh avoidance <laughs> of such an of, of such an incidence the that portion of the policy and that endorsement did not pay out so just to drive that point home bonnie's claim would have been paid out had there been an actual case of COVID-19 at the theater. The policy requires that there actually be an incidence of disease. But because the Fox was shut down preemptively to prevent the spread, no dice. If that claim had been paid at the beginning of the pandemic, Bonnie says the Fox could have avoided a lot of the struggles that followed. So um, we are that very particular type of operation that simply cannot operate now. And what we're learning, unfortunately, is just how important that coverage, that, that money could have been because this is gonna extend for at, at, at least another six months before we feel confident or any kind of confidence whatsoever that we would be able to start holding events again and actually earning revenue again. Unlike Bonnie, Bobby Stuckey didn't have a lot of experience with his insurer or the insurance industry at large before the pandemic. Stuckey is a restaurateur who owns four places in Boulder and Denver, Colorado, everything from fine dining to fast casual pizza. He says when this all started, he wasn't really planning for the worst. Well, I think when it first arrived, I think all of us were a little bit asleep at the wheel. I mean, I think we had, you know, my wife is naturally a, uh, a nervous Nelly and a worry wart and bought masks back in January, bought gloves. But I think we were just going through our typical day. And then it was funny, I was a guest sommelier at an event March 9th in New York where they had, they had people from all over the world there. My wife and I flew there and she gave me a kit 
to go do wine service that night. She's like, okay, here's your Perel for your pocket. I want you to wash, you know, like we were hearing about it, but this is how fast it crept up on us is that was March 9th or 10th. By the next week, all of America was shutting down. Very quickly, the gravity of what was happening set in. And shortly after that, the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, issued shutdown orders. By acting boldly now, we can limit the duration of this economic crisis. Rather than and, I will, and I literally crisis. told my staff in all Navate, I said, everyone was stressed out. I said, you know what, we're gonna be okay. I've been paying business interruption insurance for 15 years. That's what this is for. I will hit send on that the second we get closed by the mayor or the governor. And that's exactly what Bobby did. We got closed, hit send to farmer's insurance, and uh, I've never seen a reply come back that quick from an insurance claim saying, uh, denied. That's an important detail. We heard from several business owners who filed claims that their claims were denied really, really quickly, like within a matter of hours. Bobby says he thinks this shows how well prepared the insurance industry was for this pandemic. This is not my job to be an expert of insurance, but I do know that I would have expected at least an investigation and maybe an on-site visit if you were going to give a denial that quick. And my gut instinct is when you give a denial that quick, because you can't get that communicated to all the insurance employees that quick, that was probably premeditated that they were probably planning this about the time when my wife bought the gloves in January. We reached out to farmers, Bobby's insurer. In an email from their spokesperson, they didn't comment on the speed of their denial. But on Bobby's particular claim, they did say, quote, In this circumstance, the claim for COVID-19 related damages, including those resulting from governmental stay-at-home orders, is not covered under the policy and is subject to applicable policy exclusions. Unquote. That was Bloomberg Law financial services reporter Lydia Baud. So that raises the question, what exactly was the insurance industry doing in the months leading up to the pandemic in the weeks immediately after all this craziness started? It seems like they really wanted to make sure they did not have any exposure to business interruption claims from stores that were shut down. Were these insurers just twirling their bad guy mustaches while laughing and counting their policyholders' money? No, no, they were not. The truth is, it wasn't that the insurance industry didn't want to pay out business interruption claims. It was that the insurers felt like they couldn't. Bloomberg Law's Evan Weinberger dug deep into the insurance industry's thinking here, and he explains what was going on. This summer, we spoke to Ray Farmer. He's the top insurance regulator in South Carolina and the president of the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. And Ray got right to the point. You know, you haven't asked, but I'll tell you, in my opinion, a, a pandemic is, is not insurable. That's a line that we heard over and over and over and over again when we were reporting out this podcast. Insurance can help protect you from some really catastrophic events, but a global pandemic just isn't one of them. The reason gets back to what Dan Schwartz, the Minnesota law professor, said earlier, the whole correlated risk thing. David Sampson, the head of the American Property Casualty Insurance Association, breaks it down here. In other words, there are just some risks that exist that are not insurable risks, and 
pandemics are one of those risks that are, at this point in time, largely uninsurable. The insurance product and the insurance industry was never designed and can't design a product that will cover the collapse or the shutdown of an entire nation's economy all at one time. It's a point that gets at some really fundamental questions about what insurance actually is and what it can and can't do. And make no mistake, if insurers did have to pay out all or even most of the business interruption claims they've received, it's not an exaggeration to say that lots and lots of insurance companies, maybe even most, would go out of business. Sampson says the entire insurance industry has roughly $800 billion in cash to pay any and all claims that may arise. But he says industry data shows that pandemic-related losses for just small companies are running at $400 billion a month. It would end up being a solvency event for the industry and inhibit the ability of the industry to pay for all of the uh, claims that are covered in policies, both on commercial policies as well as personal lines policies. It would take only a couple of months before all of that statutory surplus is exhausted. Uh, and then who's going to be left to pay claims for uh, you know, tornadoes and hurricanes? There's an important point to make here. Some insurers did sell policies that covered pandemics. After all, you can get almost anything insured. It used to be common practice for movie stars to insure their own faces. But the question is, at what price? Here's an example. You know Wimbledon, that big tennis tournament in England? It's unclear why, but ever since the SARS outbreak, the organizers of the tournament purchased a business interruption policy that specifically covered pandemics. They were covered after this year's tournament had to be canceled but their coverage reportedly came at the cost of nearly $2 million a year, every year, for almost two decades leading up to this year. Rhonda Oren, an attorney with the firm Anderson Kill, who represents policyholders in suits against their insurance companies, says it's irrelevant whether a business could have or couldn't have protected itself before the pandemic. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of the role insurance is supposed to play in society, she says. Who steps forward in a national crisis of this scale is always in a capitalist society, a conflict between government and private industry. So you have insurance companies that are supposed to step forward in a crisis and It sounds like they're pushing back and saying, sorry, this one's too big for us. We're going to step back now and this is the government's problem. This crisis is too huge for a private industry to handle. It has to be handled on the government level. That is a, a deep philosophical conversation, really. And she says, that would be fine, except the government doesn't treat insurance companies like normal companies. For example, they enjoy lots of perks from the government, like exemptions from antitrust laws. Insurance companies are not supposed to be cutting their losses when there's a crisis. That is the time for them to step up and say they're here. It's completely backwards uh, for the insurance industry to say, but if we pay these losses, we'll go bankrupt. Well, I guess you didn't do a good job with your reserves then. 
That is your raison d'etre. That's what you are. Congress can and does get involved in regulating insurers, but really, the lion's share of the oversight happens at the state level. Mike Creedler, the top insurance regulator in Washington state, says he's not happy with how quickly insurers are rejecting claims, in some cases just hours after they've been filed. It became clear that the insurance companies were, in my opinion, being somewhat cavalier in their response to uh, their policyholders as to whether they had coverage or not. Uh, I made it very clear. I sent out a notice to all of the insurance companies saying if, if you deny a claim for business interruption, you have a legal obligation to give a, a thorough and complete answer as to why you're covered or not covered. But while Creedler may bristle at how the message is being delivered, he ultimately agrees with Samson that this crisis is not something the insurance industry can be expected to handle. As a player in the public sector, however, Creedler is thinking about what all this means. He says it's not tenable to just tell businesses they can't get insurance for any future pandemic shutdowns. Because now we all know how devastating a pandemic can be and how it can hit at any time. If businesses can't insure this risk, banks won't lend to them. Creedler can already imagine what discussions in boardrooms will be like when companies learn they can't insure pandemic risk. Listen, we've got to have some kind of coverage here. You know, I can't convince the banks, I can't convince my stockholders that this is a prudent activity if, uh, if we've got this kind of risk hanging over our head. So you've got to offer me insurance coverage. That's who's going to lead the charge then with the Congress. Congress is going to feel some the hot breath in the back of its neck on this one. We talked about this with Steve Dennis, the head of the Small Business Finance Association. That's a group that represents banks who make loans to businesses like these. He was genuinely unsure how things would play out in the future if small businesses can't get pandemic insurance. He said many of the lenders he represents are struggling already, and he doesn't know how they'd be able to take on the risk of lending to an uninsured business. Ultimately, Dennis says, operating a small business needs to somehow be made less harrowing. The federal government needs to, quote, send a message to small business owners that it's safe to open their doors, unquote. That was Bloomberg Law Financial Services reporter Evan Weinberger. All right, so we've established that the ball is in Congress's court. All those lawmakers on Capitol Hill have to do is remake the entire property and casualty insurance industry. This is where you have an essentially unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. You have insurers saying pandemics are essentially uninsurable events because they hit everyone all at once. And you have business owners saying we can't function without insuring the risk of a future pandemic. Bloomberg Tax's David Hood talked to lawmakers on both sides of the aisle about this and found few signs that they're anywhere close. Believe it or not, there actually is precedent for Congress stepping in and forcing the insurance industry to cover something it wasn't or just creating a whole new insurance product out of whole cloth. That's basically what happened in the late 1960s with the creation of the National Flood Insurance Program, NFIP. Congress got tired of stepping in and footing the bill to rebuild communities after floods, but no private company would offer flood insurance. It was that whole correlated risk thing. Remember what Professor Schwartz said earlier? Insurers thrive when they can uh, insure risks that are not correlated with one another. So 
Now apply that to floods. In 1965, Hurricane Betsy caused an inflation-adjusted 11.5 billion in damages. That was the final straw. The eye of the hurricane crosses Key Largo, heading west. So what Congress did with the NFIP was basically just create its own insurance company. Now, through this program, private companies can sell you a flood policy, but all the premiums go to the federal government, and all the claims are paid by Uncle Sam. So that's one possible model, but that might not be the best model for Congress, according to Vicki Schmidt. She's the top insurance regulator in the state of Kansas. There are some compelling arguments that probably could and should be made that it's not the most well-run program, and it's expensive, and it can be abused. Vicky's Midwesternness is showing. What she's too polite to say is that the NFIP is in deep trouble. Because it's run by the government, there's been a strong incentive to keep premiums lower than they should be to avoid angering voters in coastal states. As a result of this, and the result of, you guessed it, climate change, the NFIP is operating at an enormous deficit year after year. A 2017 study from the Congressional Budget Office found that, in an average year, the program pays out around $1.4 billion more than it brings in from premiums, which means taxpayers are subsidizing this insurance program to the tune of around $1.4 billion a year. Before, we're well above hurricane force. I, it had to be in the 9,500 mile an hour range. So, even though floods happen more frequently than global pandemics, maybe federally run pandemic insurance isn't the way to go. There's another option Congress can consider. In fact, they already did it once, after the terrorist attacks of September 11th. And we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the Back then, businesses were in a similar situation to where they are now. They needed to be able to ensure the risk of another terrorist attack happening. But the insurance industry felt it couldn't handle that. Mike Creedler, the insurance commissioner of Washington State, remembers it well. The losses could have been really quite unprecedented, uh, depending on the Terrorism Act, and uh, getting insurance companies to build that into their into their policies, um, they found extremely difficult to do. Um, and it, in, in order to make sure that you were having uh, adequate coverage for all kinds of losses, including acts of terrorism. Um, the federal government stepped in. What they did was create the Terrorism Risk Insurance Program. Instead of essentially having the federal government issue policies, what Congress did was tell private insurers, hey, you need to issue policies that cover terrorism. But if a terrorist attack actually happens and your claims exceed a certain amount, we, the U.S. taxpayers, will cover the rest. In this way, the federal government essentially became what's known as a reinsurer an insurance company that covers other insurance companies. It's kind of like the insurance industry version of that movie Inception. Very meta. This can't be done. Dreams within dreams is too unstable. It is possible. So this seems like a viable option. Tell insurers they have to cover pandemics, but let them know that John and Jane taxpayer will have their backs if the amount of claims gets too big. And actually, this is exactly what some lawmakers want to do. Carolyn Maloney, a senior Democrat from New York who sits on the House Financial Services Committee, introduced a bill in May that would create something like the Terrorism Risk Insurance Program, but for pandemics. After the terrorist attack on 9-11, the economy in New York completely shut down. I can tell you, you could not even insure a hot dog stand. We couldn't build anything. 
everything stopped because insurance companies would not insure any property against terrorist attacks. But Congress recognized that if companies couldn't get terrorism insurance, then there would be no more construction and millions of jobs would be lost. But even this might not be palatable for some on Capitol Hill. Blaine Lukemeyer, a Missouri Republican who also sits on the House Financial Services Committee, says, without some kind of backstop, Maloney's bill could lead to the government spending a nearly infinite amount of money if another pandemic hits. The, the program that she's outlined, uh, quite frankly, um, in my mind, has got a lot of problems with it, and I just really don't see that it's um, it, it's got much of a chance of working. Uh, it, it's just not something I think can actually happen. Uh, it's poorly structured and the costs are, you know, um, holy cow, do we really have a backstop or do we not have a backstop in this thing with the government? Luke Meyer is ultimately of the school of thought that a pandemic is an uninsurable event. And the only way to respond to it is to do exactly what Congress is already doing right now. Uh, number one, is this something we can actually fix and prepare for? Because this is a once in a hundred year event, apparently, it's, you know, this is seems to be the, the magnitude of this pandemic seems to be comparable to nothing until, you know, other than one back in the early 1900s. You know, so how do you prepare for something, you know, just even 50 years in the future? You know, is it something that we're maybe better off just left to responding to at that moment and just do like we're doing now? Just come up with a solution that fix that problem at that point in time uh, uh, so that we can continue to to exist and, and get our company our, our companies and our back up in business and get our employees back to work and get our country up and running again of course this means that all the businesses that were relying on their insurance policies to save them in a situation like the coronavirus well unless the government directly bails them out that's it for them there is another solution, one not quite as fatalistic as Lukemeyer's. It would involve simply passing a law requiring insurance companies to pay out all the business interruption claims, both the ones already filed and ones that will be filed in the future. In other words, lawmakers retroactively go back and essentially take all those virus exclusions that were tucked into all the business interruption policies and basically obliterate them. Putting aside the dubious legality of lawmakers just rewriting existing contracts, doing this would be extreme. So extreme that few, if anyone in Congress, is even talking about it. But if you travel north a few hundred miles to Albany, New York, Robert Carroll will be glad to chat with you. He's a state legislator from New York City who has a bill that would mandate retroactive payment of post-pandemic business interruption claims. These small businesses have zero bargaining power. A broker comes to them says you should have this insurance. Sometimes the state, and in New York, the state requires certain small businesses to carry certain um, casualty and liability insurance, which sometimes business interruption is baked into. Um, and they pick it out the way you pick the, between a Verizon and AT&T cell phone contract, or the difference between a Bank of America and Wells Fargo mortgage. Um, you know, you are not negotiating the terms of those contracts. Carroll says, in a way, his bill would prevent the insurance industry from successfully outsmarting its clients. You were smarter, more sophisticated than every small business in America. Kudos to you. But no, we're not going to let you sit on 
at possibly as much as $1.4 trillion of reserves. Pay out your executives million-dollar bonuses at the end of this year and see economic devastation rip apart our small businesses, especially in our big, expensive cities. Carroll's bill is showing no signs of momentum in Albany. Other similar bills in other state legislatures are suffering the same fate. But despite that, the insurance industry seems to feel the threat of this retroactive approach. In earnings calls earlier this year, several industry executives said they will fight legislation forcing retroactive payouts. Christopher Swift, the CEO of the Hartford Financial Services Groups, framed this debate in existential terms. Any effort to retroactively rewrite these contracts, presume coverage, or remove exclusions would threaten the very foundation of the insurance industry, the sanctity of contracts under our Constitution, and the principles of a free market economy. And finally, what does the insurance industry itself want to do? Well, its plan would basically take the insurance industry out of the equation altogether. The industry's proposal would create kind of a piggy bank at the Treasury Department that businesses would gradually pay into. If another pandemic hits, or if COVID-19 causes another federal emergency order, those companies could make withdrawals to cover lost revenue and payroll. If there's not enough funds, the government would cover the rest. And so the whole idea uh, behind our proposal is let's learn the lessons from what we're going through right now and design a more systemic, predictable approach, God forbid, that we have future outbreaks of COVID-19 or other uh, pandemics. That's David Sampson, the insurance industry head who you've heard from earlier. He also said the new Treasury fund would be more effective than insurance. No claims, no forensic investigations into companies' books, no advanced documentation, automatic, fast, and easy for everyone. But it doesn't seem like this is getting much traction on Capitol Hill. Powerful lawmakers like Maloney say this wouldn't deal with the problems companies are facing now and that insurers should play a more active role. That was Bloomberg Law tax reporter David Hood. And that's what the debate over the future of insurance will look like in the coming weeks, months, and most likely years. But what about the people who aren't so much worried about the future, but are worried about the present? The business owners who just need money to stay in business? Is there any hope for them? Well, since we talked with them earlier this year, Bonnie, the theater owner in Tucson, is still presiding over a totally closed theater. She told us she expects the Fox to be closed through the first quarter of next year and said its future will depend on some mix of philanthropy and new federal performing arts subsidies. Bobby, the restaurateur in Colorado, has had all of his insurance claims denied. He's suing his insurer, but doesn't have a court date until next summer. And Julia, the cafe owner in Santa Barbara, also hasn't collected on her business interruption claims, but she says she's still watching for new quarantine orders from California Governor Gavin Newsom. She says depending on the exact wording of a future order from Newsom, her insurance policy may finally kick in. Her cafe is still in business, but just for delivery and pickup. With the rent sky high, she's not sure how much longer she can stay in business, but Julia told us we're still here and we're still hanging on. Business Interrupted was produced by myself, David Schultz, along with Lydia Bayoud, Evan Weinberger, and David Hood. Additional help came from Andrew Satter. Our editors were Josh Block and Adam Allington, and Josh Block is our executive producer. 
If you love Business Interrupted or even just liked it, please share it on social media and also check out our extensive coverage of the insurance industry and lots of other legal issues at BloombergLaw.com. And if you like podcasts, and if you've made it this far, I'm sure you do, check out our suite of podcasts. We've got weekly shows on everything from the environment to the Supreme Court. You can find them at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts. That's news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.